This is Randy Edelman, and you're listening to Pop Culture Addicts. Welcome to Pop Culture Addicts, the weekly show that brings you interviews and discussions with people in our pop culture world. You know, that means we get to talk more about movies, more music, more video games, and more. (laughs) Don't miss a week. You never know who's going to be our next guest. So, okay, addicts, are you ready for your pop culture fix? Okay, Pop Culture Addicts, our guest today is Randy Edelman. He's a longtime gold and platinum recording artist, movie and TV show score creator. And overall, just from what everything I've seen, a really cool guy that we're super thrilled to be able to have the opportunity to talk with. So, Randy, welcome to the show today. Nice to be here. We are very excited for you to be joining us. Thank you. Kathleen and I are both big fans of of music. Um, Now, particularly, I always seem to be humming or singing something that... I woke up with that in the morning. I call it Radiohead. I wake up with Radiohead and I get the song stuck in my head that I can't ever seem to get out. Uh, And so when I have an opportunity to talk to people who have such distinguished careers in music, I'm always impressed by what they've done. And, 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 you know, especially looking at your career and background in music, I'm impressed by a couple of things. But one of the things I think kind of impressed me the most um, is the number of artists that have covered your stuff. What does it mean to you to have others who want to recreate your work and and keep your music going? I mean, I wrote songs for myself. I never wrote songs for anybody else. I mean, basically, I wrote songs for myself. Uh, When I got out of school, the music business had changed. So the idea of a music publisher taking a song to a record producer at a record label who had a number of artists they produced that they produced a record, obviously, that all changed long before you guys were around, and suddenly 99% of people selling records wrote and produced their own stuff. doesn't matter if you go way back to the Beatles or Bob Dylan or anybody. So therefore, if you wrote songs and you wanted people to record them, you had to record them by yourself. Hence, the singer slash songwriter. Gotcha. Okay. By chance, after being a concert pianist and my whole background in classical stuff, so I was this kid... And I started writing these songs and signing record deals. And that's how people recorded the songs. But I only wrote songs that I kind of um, uh, had a a really good feeling for. I didn't just write songs out of the blue. So going, circling back to what you just asked me, as far as what it meant to me when people did them, I was always happy they they recorded them. Um, And there were lots of them of every... uh, genre uh, back then but since they were written for my own albums uh, that's the kind of version of the song that I was always into and and then when other people interpreted them trying to kind of make my own version to me I always wrote the songs did them on my own albums and then they kind of went out to the world and then those people did them and each like I said Great people did it, and I was always completely, I took it as um, a compliment that anybody would record any of these songs because they were very kind of personal songs. So with the, the songwriting process, I mean, Tim and I, we don't write songs. We're not songwriters. Um, but that whole that whole process is is foreign to us, how to write a song. So could you, for our listeners, maybe explain your basic process on how you write a song? My my process is you sit down and you write a song. <laughs> but 
I haven't done that in a long time. I don't do that anymore. I wouldn't. I, I don't have time or the interest to write a song right now. I'm giving you a really bad, you know, did I? I did it for years. I always loved it. But when you score films, that has nothing to do with songwriting. Songwriting, anybody can write a song. You may have a background in music or just a great ear and and you're able to play guitar, so, you know, but it's a whole different world. So as far as writing songs, you have to be able to seriously write from your soul. There's not like you sit down and you figure out a way. No, you just sit down. You have a good lyric idea. You have a good melodic idea. And it's got to come quickly. Whereas what I've been doing, when I say recently, for a long time, scoring films is a whole other thing. That's serious work. Songwriting is different. You know, but as far as a method or a way to tell somebody how to do it, if you have to tell somebody how to do it, guess what? They, they're not going to be able it's not, it's not happening. You have to sit down and just be able to do it. And the people who are great are not the people who are great musicians as far as songwriters. Some of the greatest ones, you know, they don't even read music, which right. is sure. Yeah, there's a different, obviously, the whole technical world now has changed including when i score films i'm sitting around here just uh, you know surrounded by a billion different things which i never knew a thing about uh when i started out the songwriting thing is a it, it's a very kind of uh, passionate uh you have to have a, a certain feeling in your gut and a certain good idea and the good idea is 95 percent of it so it's a it's a different kind of thing than what i lately have been doing However, since you're talking about that, uh, I did recently, though, do something, a song that's loosely about the COVID called Coming Out the Other Side, about uh, when things get better, which I thought was going to happen about <laughs> six we, months ago. We were optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> huh? yeah we, we were, were optimistic. optimistic about it, too. And then, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so anyway, this song, it's not really about the COVID. It's basically about, hey... When it's all over, we can put our best suit on and put on a hat and go out and dance and blah, 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 and have fun. Come, you know, coming out the yeah. other side. And it's right. a cool little song that I wrote and, and did everything back here, played everything myself. And um, that, so that, that's, that's what that is. So, yeah, I, I listened to that on, on uh, Apple Music this morning. And I was, I kind of found myself kind of, you know, tapping my desk to the drums. Uh, it's a fun, the yeah. The, oh, the drums. There are no that done all back here. There's nothing on it, but I'm playing everything. Um, but it's a little toe tapper, and that is what I like about the whole thing. Is that's completely different than if you ever heard any one of my dozen solo albums of mm -hmm. you know, more pretty ballads and soaring strings and all this kind of stuff. That's why I like it because it sounds like I, you know, it sounds kind of. Uh, like a very cool kind of innocent young thing. Oh, you absolutely. And, yeah. and I really think it's, and so for, if you guys haven't caught it yet on caught onto it yet, rather uh, it's called coming out the other side. Um, it's available right now everywhere. Go check it out. It's a really cool song. And, and like I said, for me, it was, the, it was the sound of the drums immediately that caught my attention. Um, Cause I was kind of, I was, I was going to listen to it while I was, while I was uh, typing an email out to somebody this morning. I'm like, I'll, I'll put that on. I'm going to listen to it. And I stopped because I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And you kind of find yourself bouncing <laughs> to the, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, this guy's cool. This guy's cooler than you think. <laughs> this guy yeah. that wrote all these big film scores, 
well, what's he doing back there fooling around with that double-time drum? I was imitating, you know what I was doing? Let's see if you're a fan of, it's an imitation of Buddy Holly in 1957, a song called Peggy Sue. You know that mm -hmm. song? I do. Okay. Well, if you know that, you'll know right from the beginning, you hear that guitar. So what I was doing, see, I, and I wouldn't have done it, even though I had the central idea. The, the only reason I was into it is I was, gonna, I was trying to make a certain feeling work. But it couldn't be done like that, so I wanted to do it with the drum. And all that is is an imitation of something I heard when I was a kid that really caught my attention. And I said, how the hell is that guy playing that on a guitar? Because in those days, you had to play it on a guitar. Yeah. Right. Play a guitar and, and those that kind of 16th note double ton thing. So that's, see, that that's my interest in these things. And so the song is more than it may seem and you picked up immediately on on what it was and you see it it hooked you it, it hooked it you maybe three seconds but at least it got you out of the shower or for, away from your typewriter which you shouldn't be listening to it while you're typing anything <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no i was uh i was impressed with it like i said i i i, I sat down i was i was ready to write an email and and just boom. And the fact that there's a, uh, a Buddy Holly connection, I think, is really cool to me. Um, I like, I, I've always loved, uh, you know, Buddy Holly. And I, I love, you know, in my opinion, he was the first rock star, in my opinion. But oh, I, oh, yeah, I bought so. those, or, or, you know, around that period, I think that's when I started buying 45s or something. And, but I, but that, those kinds of things, you see, that they, they stick in, they always stuck in my, Year, sort of uh i was always into when i was a kid of course i was into the song and the melody mm -hmm. and but i was always into the aspects of the arrangement and that played out in in a huge way later in my life when i became the conductor of the london symphony i did all these scores mm -hmm. and stuff it's interesting how it goes back there was something when i listen used to listen to those records and i loved pop music or i mm -hmm. wouldn't ended up here would have been on a concert stage somewhere but i was interested in the sounds and the arrangement and that was an example of a song that was so unique when it came out and you heard that guitar and you try to figure it out is somebody actually at playing it well of course they were because they had to be in those days there was no kind of sampler or synthesizer playing right. or quantize right. or any of that stuff so it's just interesting and my interest in this, I would have never finished this little idea that came into my head late at night, you know, a few months back when I when I wrote the song, never never planning to record it or put it out or anything like that, because I was doing my my other thing for all this time. But that aspect of it uh, intrigued me. And so when I came back here and started fooling around, I remember when I was going to start the song and I started a screw around with exactly what you picked up and you know what it would have been so easy for me to say you know what that's a little involved you don't really need that for the song no you don't you can do those but guess what if it didn't have that i wasn't interested i had the words i had the music but i had a certain feeling that i wanted to have and you got it exactly and it was that and if i couldn't make that work now, there's a few other things other than drums playing it, but I buried most of that. It's basically all you really right. need is almost a very old-fashioned 
tom-tom sound. It doesn't sound kind of synthy or, you know, right. sound, it, it sounds about as dry as you can. But that was, that's what turned me on to finish it, to mess around with it, and to actually let somebody hear it. When I went to New York to score a film and everybody that heard it was like, it was just, it was like your reaction was like, hey, hold it. And a lot of these people knew of my former background as a person writing Barry Manilow hits and Olivia right. and Patti LaBelle. And they expected to be, okay, it's going to be a, a really beautiful, big, hooky ballad, mm -hmm. you know? And suddenly this thing comes on and it's not that at all, you know, thankfully. And, and that was it. So, but it is, well, it is fun that this far into your career, you can still surprise people. Oh, you no. Know, and, and that's the whole other thing. That's what I've always not planned, but that's what I've done. And that's what that's why I'm sitting here now uh, as crazy as ever and as enthused <laughs> as ever about the the little film that I'm scoring now, which is very cool. And um, the song and also the new Ghostbusters score that I wrote a million years ago. That's a great story and a great finish because it's the greatest uh, soundtrack company there is and serious music label, Sony Classical, who did it. And it's really, they've done a fantastic job. They have called me for years about putting out the score. Whole other story about, you'd say, why wasn't it ever out? And you'd say, oh, there was a score. It was only songs. And then you go to the movie and what do you hear? What's the music? The music is 95%, just my score. At the time, I was just getting into film scoring. I didn't have any power, and I was just happy to get through this. The sequel was a big hit. It had all the original people in it, Bill and Dan Aykroyd and the same yeah. writers, and everybody was in it. So I never put it—I just, like, went on, and then I started doing Les Mohegans and Gettysburg and Dragonheart and all these, these other things. So I never, like, was able to call up and say, hey, you know, you really should put this out. So every few years, somebody would call me about doing it and blah, blah, blah. So finally, you know, <laughs> they, they like, it was about a year ago. So after all this time, and it's not like you got to understand, it's not like I'm sitting here for 25 years saying, oh, my score to the sequel, you know, Ghostbusters 2 has to come out. No, I had had Last of Mohegans, which was like a triple platinum album, getting right. all these stuff from my films so they finally call me i'll say a year ago and i said you're you're really gonna do it send me the masters uh you know down the block i'm here in beverly hills you're right across the valley where the studios and about a day later they call me and they said somebody's sending it to you from new york and the guy sends me the stuff from new york well there was about 80 minutes of music in that score that's a lot of music mm -hmm. yeah it is they send me about 30 minutes I said, what? it's not here. That's all we have. This is of the orchestral. You talk about 90, 100-piece orchestra sessions, mm -hmm. huge sessions, tons of music. That's all they could find. Somehow, guess what? The sequel to the biggest comedy of all time, Sony has somehow misplaced. So, of course, they all, you know. Yeah, well, guess wow. what? Go round and round and round and round and round, and guess what? That's it. I found some other thing because I figured, okay, they'll find it. I've been through something similar before. Different time, different mm -hmm. life, similar mm -hmm. story. Doing, producing a record with someone and tape being lost, that's one thing. But this is something else. 
So I had to figure out a way around it because these people are serious and they don't want to release, they won't release a record of a soundtrack with 30 minutes of music or 40 minutes of, you know. So right. I had to go in and re-record some stuff uh, and do some other things in order to fill this out the same way I would have wanted it to be filled out with all the music that I wrote for the thing, because that's what it is. You know, 30 so, years ago. <laughs> yeah, thir no, yes. Yeah, so other than the issue that you had with, you know, getting this movie and having to re-record everything, what does it mean to you to be involved in such a major piece of pop culture history? Uh, well, at the time, it meant something to me because it was a big deal. But now, I, I mean, I've, I've done enough, so it's, 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 it's another comedy with Kindergarten Cop and Twins and, sure. and While You Were Sleeping. The Mask. and My Cousin Vinny in The Mask. and Down Periscope. One of my yeah. favorites. No, no, no. Don't <laughs> People keep mentioning. You see, this is, I'll tell you what's great, okay, and what turns me on. And people sort of don't understand this. So I've done like 100 movies. Um, and by the way, I didn't do movies till late. I had like a 20-year career before okay. I did any major thing. Yeah. So I started when I was 12. But, it, you know, seriously, you said down Periscope. That's a horrible picture. You know, that's like the, <laughs> you know, now I've done other smaller pictures. Like when I did, when I got a call from a guy named Adam Sandler, Randy, you got to do my first picture, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know what? I've done so many comedies. I need to steer my ship and it's impossible to do. It's like, you can't just do six or seven big comedies and then say, I want to do last of the Mohegans or I want to do get, you know, right. so, but I knew he was a talented guy. And so I went up to see his. So he said, come up to Tucson or wherever it was. Go up there with me and you'll see my movie. So we go in to see this movie. And of course, it's the stupidest thing in the history of anything. Okay. And I leave. Now, the difference between Billy Madison, his first picture, that's the one I'm talking about, mm -hmm. and Periscope, you see, it's different. Billy Madison, after you. Uh, which I, and I said okay because I really loved the guy and I and I had fun with it. That's a different thing because you're dealing with in Billy Madison with a guy like Adam Sandler who is doing this stuff that seems crazy, but <laughs> or dealing with someone like Jim Carrey in The Mask. There you're dealing with really talented people. Like it or not, they got something in their head. Right. They go with it. They don't they don't care if the cameraman thinks they're you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then when you work on these things like I did, or Joe Pesci and My Cousin Vinny. My cousin Vinny is about Brooklyn, New York. So right. why did I write a southern score? It's not even <laughs> a score that sounds like the Allman brothers. Because it took place in the South. But Marissa and him they were Brooklyners and it's all these things always intrigue me and they're doing something. And when people do that and they pull it off, it's something good. You right. may not say it's artistically great, but it's good. This brings us back to down Periscope. Okay. <laughs> down Periscope is different. It's an ensemble piece with all these people trying to be funny. So that's, that's different. I won't go on about that, but I, oh, it's fine. I wanted to bring up the issue, and I don't, you know, I, 
I don't I don't want to be mean. But the the reason that you saw it and that all these other pictures have become classics, because by the way, they weren't all big hits. They've sort no. of become, if you say these, The Mask or My Cousin Vinny or Billy Madison, it's like, oh man, what are you kidding? These are all, they weren't big hits. Now they became via their showings on cable for all these years and people loving this stuff. And people see them because movies and this, particularly these comedy scores of mine got exposed up the kazoo mm -hmm. because of this exposure in every country you're streaming cable whatever it is i mean this stuff is not only all over the place for all these years they're hotter now than ever you know so um each, each but again each one of those scores i have stories about me and the people fighting with the director <laughs> get out of here because it's a collaborative writing scores is a collaborative field even though i do it completely alone when i get the chance to be alone with it and they bother you a lot you know they're you're they're at the they're knocking on my door and i'm saying why don't you give me a little time so i can look at your movie and think they don't understand that they yeah. think the music is just you know, right. So. And done. Turn it in. Let's go. And, that, and and you have already little enough time. I mean, people say, how much time do you have? As much time as they give me. If it's a week, it's a week. If it's two months, it's two months. It's as much time as they have because these things are all uh, each one has a different reason that you got there. It's not like they call me and they say, we want you to do this. There's always a reason. No matter how great you think you are, or how your your how many credits you have, or there's a reason that you got the call and they need it next Tuesday. <laughs> so if you've been making this picture for 20 years, which by the way, it doesn't matter if it's the silliest movie in the world or the a great dramatic picture, all these things have long histories. They were a Dutton, they were a novel, a studio bought it. They needed a screenplay. Somebody wrote the screenplay. They didn't like it, so the studio put it in turnaround. Someone else wrote it. A star said they were doing it, but their schedule got mixed up, and all of a sudden, it's 15 years later from something that you think, boy, this thing, this thing should have taken like a month to write, but that's not what it is. And the composer is the last person in making a great, great contribution to the picture, but everybody else it's like family, but not the composer, because you come in at the last second. Mm. That's the way it is. So See, with all of the with all of the movies that you've scored, I mean, you've got huge names in your list. So do you have a favorite? Which I mean, I know some people would say would be like choosing a favorite child, but no, 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 no. It, it's it's no. You, well, I can't. First of all, there's, there's too many, and <laughs> and and like I said, it's not like. It must be Last of the Mohegans because the music is so well-known to Daniel Day-Lewis and Michael Mann and all this stuff. But it's not that it's not. It's just there's different... Each one has a different story. And a lot of times, it also depends... When I get done with the score, because you have to give them the score, then they take it on a mixing stage with the sound effects mm -hmm. and the dialogue and all the other stuff. And then they can totally control if they screw it up or not. <laughs> but sometimes, yeah, well, then which they do, 
because right. that happens. That's the nature of it. It's not like I wrote 50. I wrote about, I wrote about 50 cues, pieces for each movie, let's say. Some 30, maybe 60. And they can do, they may not use every cue. That's par for the course. They may play the music so softly that you can hardly hear it. Mm-hmm. And they act like, what are you complaining about? First of all, I'm not there when they do it. What are you complaining about? We used it. Yeah, you used it, but I can't, nobody can hear it. Or they may play the music too loud, you know, or cut it in half. Mm-hmm. So, and so when you ask me what was my favorite, it may be that the one that I would have said my favorite once it's in this room turned out that it didn't turn out the way they used it exactly the way I wanted to have it. So I have certain ones that I love that are movies that maybe a lot of people didn't see, you know. So it doesn't mean that um, I would say the ones, you know, I could I could give you 10 right now and they're You'd say, oh, yeah, 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 they're all big hits. But that's not the way that I wouldn't be honest with you. That's not really the ones that may be my favorite. My favorite ones are the ones that the movie comes out wonderfully. And my music adds that layer to it that hopefully help the director to achieve his vision of all those scenes and the level that the movie could have helped him to deliver his vision of what this was, the movie was in the first place. Now, we, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, going back and forth, uh, you know, um, whether it was song composition or it was music scoring. There's always, my brother is, is a, and the reason I ask is my brother who lives in the Detroit area is a, a, uh, a songwriter, he's a musician. Now he said that there's been a couple, only been a couple songs over the, the entirety of his time that he wishes that he would have been the writer for. Now, have you ever had that instance where you're watching a movie and you think, man, I, this is something I wish I would have had the opportunity to work on, or this is the movie that I wish I would have been able to write the well, score well, for? You said your brother was a song. Are you talking about song as a songwriter? Or as well, a I'm, I'm crossing I mean, it over to I'm crossing it over to musical scores. Oh, so. oh, uh, you know, yeah, a million of them. You know, of course, you hear something that's great. It'd always be nice if you did it. You know. I would have loved to have written Schindler's List, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, okay. see, and the reason I asked like, no, like it, that, does, it doesn't. No, it's not something at all that I ever. But would I have liked to have written certain scores? Yeah, I'd be completely dishonest as anybody would would to just say, "Oh no, I've I've only liked to write the ones that I wrote." You know. Yeah. I I appreciate what other people do. I do have one more question about your your previous work. Um, back when you were a songwriter, my mom is a huge Carpenters fan. She yeah. always has been. Uh-huh. And I know that they covered three of your songs, at least three of your songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wanted to know how you go about writing something that's so marketable without pandering, or does pop music just pander to a certain well, extent? Not, yeah, but, but okay, well, I can answer your mom. I mean, Definitely. And, and of course, I never wrote anything for the Carpenters. Just like I told you. Did they love me? Loved me. Did they pick me out a million to one shot? Yes. But that's because Richard, who was the very talented brother in the group, Mm -hmm. laid it to my piano playing on my first album. It's not that they just recorded my songs. 
And when I'll tell you about the first one they did, because it goes back to your question, it's that they took me and threw me in front of 15 or 20,000 people a night as their opening act when I hadn't played in front of my mother ever. <laughs> yeah. Oof. And then I think of Karen standing the first concert by the stage. I had a turtleneck sweater that I had bought. I didn't have any clothes. I didn't have a for an act. I didn't have an act. The only my only thing that I knew were the ten songs from that first album. It's not like I had. And when the lights hit me, because they were you know it was huge stage and thousands of, and I got off the stage, I was so drenched from sweat that I couldn't see a thing. And this sweet, she was as young and innocent as I was. I think we were the same age, maybe. 22 at the time and she she literally hugged me and told me how great i was and it makes yeah. me very sad right now yeah and i'm sweating i've just played for twenty thousand people who didn't <laughs> know who i was i got through it i couldn't even tell or cared less because at something like that you're removed if i was in a little club i would have been nervous but i wasn't you're in this the stage is far away, the lights and, you know. Yeah. And um, so the the answer to your question is, as far as I, I, when you were asking about your mother and you said something like, how do you, what was it? You said something about accessible or. How does, how do you market something without pandering? How do you. Well, 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 hold on. Market there. What, what is more? I didn't, what didn't market anything. I did an album of my songs just like I told you. And I wrote a song, and here's the song. All this crazy abstract gameplay wasn't pop. It wasn't <laughs> even, it wasn't anything. And what, what was it, a song? It was about a song called Piano Picker, which I almost mm -hmm. didn't put on the album because nobody, you know, nobody want who cares and it was a song about like a funny song about how i learned how to play the piano while the other guys were out playing with the football i was home banging on the keys you know and guess what this guy selling billions of records rich and carp richard carpenter whammo that's how they got into randy edelman this obscure thing on an album then of course once they get into that yeah they get into another more melodic song, but that was it. It was me doing something, having no idea. You talk about not marketing. And I remember the record company saying to me, and by the way, this was not Columbia Capital or Warner. Yeah. This was like a nothing with a bunch of people who knew nothing, except to say, you don't want to put that on this album, on the, you know, you want people, you want to have a hit single. You want to blow, you know, the whole spiel that I dealt with for years, uh, which is, I understand, you know, that's just business. Had I not done that, this guy wouldn't have responded. Then obviously there's more to the story. How did Richard Carpenter hear it on your album? He didn't go out to the record store. He didn't buy it. He didn't hear it on the radio. Anyway, but yes, there always has to be something that happens but as far as marketability or anything like that 
nothing like that was involved. I did an album of stuff that was very sensitive to me because my girlfriend had dumped me and I was completely, I mean, I was clinically depressed, but I didn't know what clinically depressed meant at the time. And I didn't know that when you're clinically <laughs> you can take drugs, you can go to see doctors. Well, I didn't know anything about that. All I know is I got dumped. And that led to me writing the songs on that album. Everyone is except one. The one I took a little break and decided to write a little thing, a humorous thing. And that's the one that this guy heard. Then subsequently, they recorded a song of mine called I Can't Make Music on an album of theirs. They're sitting like in a Ferrari or something outside mm -hmm. their house. It's called I Can't Make Music. That is a really, really, really sad song. And when I heard the way she did it, and she was this young, I couldn't believe it. I mean, she made it even sadder. But <laughs> the, the jump between the piano picker and that, and they were too not marketable, for lack of a better, pieces of music done by uh, this, this group, call them a group, that were selling all these records and and but not having gone along even at that time they weren't in the mainstream the main right. was uh, just look it doesn't matter if it's the eagles or bob dylan or the beatles or, you know james taylor or elton john it wasn't like these two kids they were just making hit records with big you know ballads and songs and then they did you know a bunch of a bunch of my stuff and um uh you know, but I um, opening for them was a trip and I will leave you with something which I know this guy's going to get a very big kick out of. Tim? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. So here it is. I know I've, I've, I'm really, I'm, I must apologize to you because I feel like I haven't answered any of your questions or I didn't, I seem to go away from what you're asking me. So here I do, I'd say I did about, let's say, uh, five or six of those concerts with them, all right? Okay. Well, by the time I did a five or six concerts, you know, with millions of people, now my head is like, I got a big head now, you know? It's no big deal. I stroll out there on the stage, and I do this thing. So let's say maybe it was a four-week tour. So after a week and a half, I'd done all these things, and I think we're, we're somewhere, and the phone rings, and it's the William Morris Agency, you know, the famous old agency that you mm -hmm. have one of these people. The reason I had an agent is because it was their agent since when they asked me to open for them, I had to have an agent. Who's the agent? It was basically their agent. <laughs> so they, they called me up and they said, listen, Randy, it's Thursday. You're in Atlanta. I said, yeah. Figure I'm going to spend a week in here. No, you got a couple of nights off. We got a gig for you. Oh, shit, I figured I was going to like the <laughs> You, We have a, it's a perfect situation. Now, I was a perfect situation. Why? And why did they take me out in the first place? Did they think I was great? No, they may have liked my songs. I was easy. Everybody wants an opening act that doesn't give them any problems. What was I? An unknown guy and sitting at a piano. Easy. Sound. Sure. How long does the sound check take? About five seconds, you know. Okay. Okay, where's the concert? It's in Phoenix. I said, yeah, but I'm in uh, 
Atlanta, yeah, but you know, we're no problem. You can be there. It's not for two nights. Who do you think it was I was now opening for? Now, you have to understand, picture the Carpenters. You know what their audience is, for the most part. It's going to be like your mother, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Frank Zappa, Mothers of Invention. That's who I'm opening for. Oof. Did not see that one connecting. Okay. That's quite the jump. <laughs> Imagine. Now, what am I going to do? Am I going to change my act for the new audience? How can I change my act? I didn't have an act. I could only do those 10 songs from that album. <laughs> I had never done in my life. And that was a scene, me opening for Frank Zappa. <laughs> People screaming with horns on their helmet, you know, and I had to do an uh, even longer period of time than with Karen and Richard with the Carpenters. So, you know, uh, then I went back to them. And then after that first concert, I, I literally took a midnight plane out of, of Phoenix or wherever it was because I had to, like, literally get out of there. And so I figured, okay, I really didn't. I may have said hello to him or something, but I just ran out of it there. And a couple of days later, they called back and said, okay, the next one's in Dallas. I said, <laughs> I said no, we're in they said, where were you talking about? It's not Karen and Richard. It's Frank Zappa again. They want you back. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's cool, though. You that's cool. That's... You want me to show you something? Sure. I have, I could have, this whole room, you can imagine, could be filled up with all these movie posters and, and sure. you know, a billion things and Goldberg. This is what I have. Can you see it? Oh, my word. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. That's cool. I can see it. With Randy, oh. With Randy Edelman, April seventh, sold out. Check that out. That's cool. Yeah, there's a cool. One. I'll put it up on eBay for about a minute. No, anyway. Okay. <laughs> to have to have your name and Frank Zappa's name in the same spot is just amazing. And I did it. A, I did it a lot. You know. Well, he, he knew nothing about me except then after I did it, then he realized and we talked. He realized I was a concert pianist. I don't come out of any pop world or anything. And so we talked about Penderecki and Stravinsky. And, you know, we get into these conversations. So it was a nice, you know, it was a nice thing. That's interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. yeah I, I have to admit, I honestly did not see it going the, the Zappa direction. That's kind of cool. So. Well, it, it's, it's just, it's just, it's a, a like, like I said, it's another uh, piece of the story. And the interesting thing I must tell you about doing these things like talking to you everybody has a different thing or some people look at it and they'll ask me about some people are completely into the film scores then mm -hmm. other people start talking about the songs that's why sometimes i may have overreacted because i've spent all these years doing the films and it's been unbelievable and musically really rewarding in a million ways sure uh, so sometimes when people bring up the songs it's not that I'm belittling. I had a whole thing, but that was almost like fun and games compared to the, quote, serious pressured world that I've been living in. Uh, but I did the song thing for a long time, and sometimes I just kind of toss it off, and then someone will say, hold on a second. There's a lot of nobody. How could you do all these solo albums, especially without having a hit single? How did you get these deals? Mm -hmm. You know, I have to give them all bullshit 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. No, you're good. I, feel like, I feel like we wanted to make sure that we talked about your whole career, not just not just not aspects just yeah. aspects of it. Because oh, no. no, it's 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 great. It's they're all, all parts of the puzzle that are you. <laughs> That's it. You know. No, so, you know what? And and you, you made mention earlier that you didn't think you answered our questions. Honestly, you answered questions for us that we didn't even get to ask yet. You answered them before we got to them. Uh, so you were, we love when people go off and they tell stories about different things because, you know, those are the things that you're comfortable talking about and it really comes out in shows. So thank you for being willing to, to share some of your stories today. That's been a lot of fun. And sometime you'll do, we'll do a whole show about Nelly. Oh, for sure. You know that. That didn't just happen by chance, and that's I a, would I would that, love that. That's a long, incredible. <laughs> I would love that. This is definitely a to be continued interview. I one hundred percent. All right, guys. You know, Randy, we have enjoyed talking to you so much today. It's got to be the weirdest thing to have your name associated, and I mean, obviously, you are you're an incredibly famous musical genius i mean you've done all of these film scores and these movies and songs but then i cannot imagine to see your see my name next to patty labelle or to see your name next to frank zappa like that would be so cool to me well i just look up and i see it <laughs> patty labelle patty labelle is part of the nelly Ooh. oh it okay. wouldn't happen without patty all right i nelly wouldn't have had because patty labelle is the one who did that song not Ooh. that way, though, years before that. Mm-hmm. And that, but that's what somebody, it's just such a, okay, last little connection. Then I'm, <laughs> I, I promise I will hang up. This is very interesting. Here's the deal. It's part of that story. What's going on today? The hurricane. Mm-hmm. What went on 16 years ago? I just heard this morning. Katrina. This day. That's right. Katrina. And you know, the only person, as everybody was leaving Miami, where Katrina started, obviously didn't start in Miami, started out in the ocean somewhere, mm-hmm. before it went across the Gulf to New Orleans. Everybody was leaving there, except one person, Randy Edelman. I was flying to the storm. Why? Because it was the big hip-hop awards. And I was getting an award for like the biggest record of the year, Nelly's record of my song called My Place. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew about the storm. When am I ever going to get this thing? Never. How could something like that even happen? So I heard about the storm, but I got on a plane early here in L.A. And it was the last one they allowed out to fly to Miami that day. And I got in. And the reason I'm telling you the story is so I got in to Miami to a place called the Fountain Bloom. It's kind of fancy hotel that I had heard about when I was a kid. I never could go there. And that's where they were having this award thing. And with all this wind and so, and of course it was all, it was all the hip hop crowd. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I met the kid who was responsible for taking the Patti LaBelle record of mine that I produced and doing something with it and sending it to someone that his mother knew in St. Louis. And that person was a lawyer and that person worked in some way for Nellie. 
But this kid, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know the record I had hit till it was like top three pop, number two R&B, number one dance. And I met this kid while this storm was going on in Miami and Katrina was coming in and they actually held these awards. And I went up there with this kid, that's the last time I saw him, who was responsible for this whole thing happening. But see, that that's how things just don't happen like that. But right. it was Patti LaBelle's record. That's that cool. Heard on one of those budget epic, uh, you know, you know, a big greatest hits package that he heard this thing and had an idea and wiped off her thing. And that's what that's what he sent to to somebody who got it to Nelly. You know, just you could never make this. No, you can't make this stuff. It's up. in that's the cool. same, It's in the same league with the Frank Zappa story. You know, these these are things you, you can't plan them. You can't make them up. And, you know, so that's it. I leave you with that. All right. I love it. All right. Well, well Randy, right, listen, thank you very much. Thank you for being welcome. on the show. Take care. Stay safe. Uh, get your booster. Definitely. So we are going to make sure that we put his website in the video description below. Absolutely. And we want to make sure, too, that you guys understand that subscribing is the single most important thing you can do to ensure we get more amazing guests like Randy Edelman to hear stories and conversations like you heard today. And we want to make sure that you check out Randy's current work, including his new hit single, Coming Out the Other Side. All right, everybody. That is our show. Please like and subscribe. Share. Make your friends listen to us. <laughs> and remember, kids, pop culture is all around you. It's influencing everything you do. So be sure to come back next week. We'll have your fix waiting right here for you. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Hey, thanks for listening to Pop Culture Addicts. If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode of Pop Culture Addicts, you can reach us on either Instagram or Twitter by using the handle at PCA Pod Show. You can also email us at PCA Pod Show at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Copyright 2021 Pop Culture Addicts. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned on this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation of by Pop Culture Addicts or any of its sponsors. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at PCAPodshow at gmail.com.